Anna Sheridan, missing for nearly six months now. That's not possible. Someone with a more vivid imagination might decide she'd pierce the veil. There's no place for ghost stories in this investigation or any other. I need you to find me. The Sheridan Tapes, a serialized horror mystery podcast. Stream the complete series today on Realm and on all podcasting platforms. The Face of Another captivated me, the way a mundane memory can lodge itself immovably in your consciousness. Even vague, nondescript events can barricade themselves in our memory, refusing to vanish with the passing of time. The sound of a delivery truck driving by on a windy Tuesday afternoon, the way water puddles by the grate of a clogged sewer drain, the cover of an obscure book you saw as you browsed a second-hand store, Despite their apparent lack of significance, these events get stuck in our minds, leaving us wondering what it was about that day that made the memory of it so sharp, so immediate in our consciousness. For me, it was a conversation I had with my father when I was a child. I was asking him about my grandmother, an immigrant from Eastern Europe who died before I was born. I remember him mentioning that nobody had ever taken a picture of her, And for whatever reason, that small fact has never strayed far from my mind. It makes me wonder whether anybody could ever truly know what she looked like. One person's memory of the structure of her face may vary greatly from another person's. It disturbs me, for some reason, to think about it. And soon, as I descend this perilous route of contemplation, I find myself wondering if her face had an objective shape at all. If we leave no record behind, who's to say what we looked like, or even what kind of person we were? Who's to say we existed at all? It was a blustery Sunday morning when I got the call from Darren Downs. Darren had been my best friend for as long as I could remember, and with his ingenuity and his insatiable appetite for traveling, he'd found himself a cushy job teaching math at a prestigious private school in Croatia. He called me periodically, keeping me updated on his latest travels around Europe, the growing collection of stamps that littered his passport, or he would just fill me in on the mundane day-to-day happenings in Croatia. But this time I could tell that his call served a different purpose. There was a subtle whine in his voice. It sounded almost like desperation. Could you do me a favor, he asked after our rushed greeting. Of course, I replied. What is it? He told me that he was worried about his mother. Though she was only in her mid-sixties, her behavior had become increasingly concerning to him. She'd stopped responding to his calls and emails a week before, and had finally called him back the previous night. He'd answered the phone with apprehension, knowing that it was nearing midnight in the Utah town where she lived. But he found her voice to be unusually chipper, 
She told him that she was calling to thank him for coming by and visiting her the other day. And when Darren told his mother that she must have been mistaken, that he hadn't been back to the States in close to four months, she became sullen and quiet, seeming confused at her son's response. Would you mind stopping by her house and checking on her? Darren asked, his voice adopting a tone of meek humility. I'm worried that she might be suffering some kind of mental break. I told Darren that I would swing by his mom's house the following day after work, as it wasn't far from where I lived in the Salt Lake Valley. He thanked me emphatically, and after a few more brief exchanges, we ended the call. As I lay in bed that night, I was struck by a morbid curiosity. I had never encountered a crazy person before. Not firsthand, at least. Would I be able to keep my composure if the woman became erratic? And if I did find her to be mentally unwell, how would I break the news to my friend? It seemed like a daunting thing to consider, but I had given Darren my word. The following evening, at just after 5 p.m., with the sun vanishing behind the cold, barren horizon, I parked my car in front of an aging colonial house in the town of Tuella. It sat in the shadow of an abandoned factory, the deteriorating smokestack looming ominously above like some kind of industrial monolith. I approached the house, weaving my way through the waist-high weeds that had taken up residence in the front yard. And just as I reached my hand out to knock on the front door, I realized that it was already open. Beginning to feel my pulse pound, I pushed the door wider, peering in at the darkened house through the broadening gap. From where I stood on the porch, I didn't have a great view of the house's interior, but I could see enough to know that it was in a state of neglect. Unopened mail and discarded items lay strewn across the floor in disarray. At the edge of the foyer, a tall standing lamp lay broken on its side, the still-burning bulb casting a strange collection of shadows across the opposing wall. Hello? I called my voice sounding frail as it echoed among the interior walls of the house. I took a step inside, calling out again as I eased myself towards the living room. The hairs on the back of my neck prickled, eyelids drawn wide taking in the dormant room. It was styled with a 1970s sensibility, carpet on the walls, otherwise adorned with ancient oil paintings, and a splintered clawfoot table standing sentinel in the middle of the room. I stepped towards the fireplace at the far end of the room, my eyes inexplicably drawn towards the framed photos that stood atop the mantel. Though I couldn't make out any of the picture's details from where I stood at the other end of the darkened room, I could see something oddly familiar in the composition of the photos. They were pictures of people, I could tell, probably Darren's family. So why then did they look so familiar? I got the feeling, looking at them, that I had been the one that had taken the photos. But that was, of course, not true. Excuse me, a shrill voice suddenly called out from behind me, tearing me free from my vacant gaze. I spun around wildly, hands raised to suggest peaceful intentions, but I probably looked more like a startled burglar caught in the act. Mrs. Downs, who I'd heard plenty about through the years but had never met personally, stood in the hallway staring back at me, 
her face a mess of perfect confusion. She was clad in a maroon bathrobe, her curly gray hair dangling above her shoulders. I'm sorry to barge right in, I said, the words tumbling out of my mouth in a clumsy rush. I was sent to check on you, your, your son. I think he's a little... concerned. She stared at me silently, the confusion on her face only deepening. As I struggled to clarify my presence in her living room, an elusive feeling began to accumulate in my gut. Though I couldn't tell what it was, I could sense that there was something off about the woman that stood before me. I didn't know how else to acknowledge it. I could admit to myself only that she was somehow wrong. It was as if she was buffering. Any part of her body that was out of my direct view seemed to be searching for shape in a constantly changing amalgamation. I felt as though I could look at her hand and for a moment, I would see the wrong number of fingers. She would have four, or perhaps seven, on each hand. Or I could look at her arms and see an extra elbow or an extra wrist, something uncanny and distorted in the constantly changing shape of her body. But then, in a flash, my vision would focus, and she would retain the proper human form. The chilling thought came over me that I was in the presence not of Mrs. Downs, but of something that was trying very hard to imitate her. Suddenly, an imperceptible calmness fell over her. Her wiry arms relaxed at her sides, and a calmly smile spanned her lips. You must be Darren's friend, she finally said. How thoughtful of him to send somebody to check up on me. And he'll be happy to know that his mother is just fine. She spread her arms out before her as she said this, as if to present herself to me, as if the gesture somehow proved her stability. But I felt no shame in accepting it as proof enough for me. As I drove home, the ochre mountains drawing jagged shadows in my rearview mirror, I dialed Darren's number. My still jittering fingers pressed the phone against my ear, and I listened to the cyclical ringing as I waited for the sound of his voicemail. It was still very early in the morning in Croatia, so I didn't anticipate him to answer. But once the phone stopped ringing, and I listened to the familiar sound of his voice requesting that the caller leave a message, I told him that I had gone to see his mother, and that she seemed mostly fine. I didn't tell him that I had felt uneasy in her presence, or that her body seemed to be fluttering, fluctuating, in the occasional lapses of my peripheral vision. I wasn't sure why, but those details seemed at the time to be better left unsaid. When I walked into my house and collapsed into bed that night, I found a welcome comfort in my girlfriend's gently sleeping figure. Esther lay sprawled and relaxed, her petite, narrow form managing to take up more than half the space on the mattress. As I eased myself under the covers, I took care not to wake her, knowing that she, like me, probably had a long and grueling day at the office. But as I closed my eyes and tried to usher myself into the realm of sleep, an odd sensation slipped over me. Laying there in the darkness, I struggled to remember what Esther's face looked like. I could feel her warmth next to me, could sense her hand brushing against mine, but I couldn't recall the details that made up her appearance. My mind conjured a completely blank, featureless visage when I tried to imagine her face. 
Does she even have a face? Some panicky, forlorn part of me wondered. Will she look the same tomorrow as she did yesterday? If she wakes up tomorrow as an entirely different person, would anybody notice? Or what if, in the morning, she's not there at all? Would I ever be able to prove that she'd even existed? The questions gripped me, gnawed at me with uncertain immediacy. But I reached a docile hand out and rested it on her waist, allowing myself to finally drift off to sleep when I felt certain that tomorrow wouldn't bring any terrifying or inexplicable changes. I was just worked up about seeing Mrs. Downs. The bedrock of my life would remain stable and constant, and when dawn came, I would see that everything remained the same. When I finally did awake, after a night of restless sleep, I picked up my phone and saw that Darren had left me a voicemail. He thanked me for stopping by his mom's house, but admitted that his fears hadn't been entirely sated. He wondered, in his humble way, if it wouldn't be too much trouble for me to visit her a few times a week, just until he returned to the States at the end of the month. I let out an apprehensive sigh, feeling the limits of my goodwill as they were pressed to their boundaries. Over breakfast, I filled Esther in on Darren's mother, and his request for me to keep tabs on her until he returned. She seemed surprised at my reluctance, as if the mere act of scrutinizing his request was in itself a moral failure of some kind. She's probably just lonely, Esther said. If it were your mother, wouldn't you want someone to be checking in on her? I agreed without much of a fight, but silently conceded to myself that if Esther had been there, had seen the eerie contortions the woman's body made in the corners of my vision, she wouldn't be so eager to urge me back to that house. Nevertheless, I accepted the duty of impromptu caretaker, and a few days later found myself again parking my car in front of Mrs. Downs' house. She let me in with a broad smile, seeming less out of sorts than she had been the last time I'd seen her. Still, I found it very difficult to look at her, fearing that I would see in her some impossible deformation, some inexplicable shape tangled in her aging figure. Perhaps she would have an eye where her nose should be, or an extra row of jagged teeth. No. Instead, I drew my attention to the photo sitting on the mantel. Something still lingered there, some vague familiarity. I stared at the pictures, trying to nail down my indefinable connection to them. Behind me, off in the corner of the room, I could hear Mrs. Downs. She was whispering something. I slowly turned my gaze over my shoulder, looking subtly at the ground as I tried to parse out her muffled words. At the edge of my vision, I could see that she was holding something. It was strung through her hands like a long string tied in a labyrinthine knot. And was there something else? It seemed, in the blur of my periphery, that she had no pupils in her eyes, just pure white corneas staring straight ahead as she whispered her inaudible verses. Standing there, I began to feel as though something were taking a hold of me. Long, invisible fingers descended my spine, their touch cold and paralyzing. I drew my eyes back towards Mrs. Downs. There was something I couldn't make sense of, 
something about the way she was standing. And then I realized she wasn't standing at all. Her feet hung limp a few inches above the carpet. She was levitating. Her body hung in suspension, white eyes staring, fingers prodding at whatever it was they were tangled up in, mouth whispering some indecipherable incantation. Finally, my paralysis broke. Without a second thought, I raced out of the house and back out to my car. A cold rain began to fall as I drove home, and with a litany of corrosive thoughts racing through my head, I picked up my phone and left Darren another message. Just as I'd done on my previous call, I completely failed to mention the impossible changes his mother seemed to be undergoing. I wondered, as I spoke, why I felt such an apprehension about admitting any of it to him. Was I scared that bringing up his mother's decline would in turn reveal my own mental degradation? And furthermore, I hastened to consider, why had I even gone back there? It seemed like something was drawing me to that house like a moth to a flame. But what was it? I knew the woman was beyond my help, arguably beyond anyone's help. If anything, she needed a doctor, not me. There was nothing I could do for her. And yet, and yet I would be back. For reasons that were beyond even my comprehension. I parked my car and walked through the rain to my front door. The rest of the night passed in relative banality. It wasn't until a few hours later, when I was in the bathroom, brushing my teeth and preparing for bed, that my sense of unease returned. I finished my nightly routine, replaced the towel on the towel rack, and pressed my hand against the cold brass handle of the bathroom door. I was about to walk out of the bathroom and lay down in bed, but something stopped me. I couldn't recall whether my girlfriend was laying in bed on the other side of that door. Did she come over tonight? I wondered. Or did she sleep at her place? Had I seen her that night? had I eaten dinner alone? They seemed on their face like easy questions to answer, but when I tried to reach into my memory and recall the events of my evening, I found them all to be fractured. There were parts of me that remembered chatting with Esther over a glass of wine while we waited for our dinner to finish cooking. And there were parts of me that remembered staring blankly at the dining room wall while I chewed through a solitary TV dinner by myself. It was as if Esther had both been there and not been there. As if there were two versions of me. The one that shared a meal with my girlfriend, and the one that dined alone in silence. As I stood there, frozen behind the bathroom door, I began to think of Esther as a probability density function. Something I taught my students about. I began to picture in my mind the bell curve that I could calculate to map out the likelihood that she lay on the other side of that door. The chilled air pricked at my skin, and the seconds ticked past. For a moment, I thought I could hear breathing coming from the other side of the door. They were the slow, controlled inhalations of someone in a deep sleep. See, I told myself, you have nothing to be worried about. Esther's sleeping soundly in bed, and you're standing here like a fool in the pitch-black bathroom because... Because what? Because you're scared you're losing your mind? Because you think something rubbed off on you when you visited Darren's mother? 
something intangible and leprous. And now it squirmed its way down into your brain and... Stop, I told myself, trying to eject the thought from my mind. Gritting my teeth, I pulled the bathroom door open and pined through the darkness towards my bed. I squeezed my eyes shut all the while, more scared of the thought of seeing than of what my eyes might actually encounter. My sleep was restless. I woke up all through the night. At some points, upon waking, I could feel her presence next to me, could feel her weight on the mattress, could sense the mass of her torso under the comforter. At other points, I woke up to the feeling of nothing at all, could detect no subtle movement, could sense no presence of a sleeping form at my side. But as long as my eyes were shut, I didn't have to know which reality I was living in. Eventually, morning came, and in the burgeoning light of the rising sun, I could see that my bed was empty. The blankets were clustered on the other side of the mattress, as if somebody had recently climbed out of the bed. But there were no other signs of life. No cell phone or purse or prescription bottle with Esther's name on it. No personal effects or photographs. Esther, that morning, seemed no more real to me than a dream I might have had the night before. I rolled out of bed feverishly and set about looking for an old picture of Esther that I'd always kept in my wallet. I needed to see her face next to mine in that photo. I needed to know that her connection to me was real. Shuddering fingers dug through the pockets of my wallet, flipping old business cards aside as I searched for the picture. Then, suddenly, I found it. Or at least found something like it. The photo I held in my hands didn't look entirely like I'd expected it to. It looked similar to the old photo of Esther and I, the one that had been in my wallet for ages, but something about it had changed. Something gave the photo an unexpected air of familiarity. I studied the face of the girl in the photo, but it wasn't until I looked at the other person in the picture, the person that I'd taken to be myself, that the picture's strange reality began to reveal itself to me. It wasn't Esther's face that had changed, but mine. And then, finally, I could see why the photos on the mantle at Mrs. Down's house had seemed so significant to me. Against my better judgment, I was back in my car an hour later, watching the Ochre Mountains pass me like the jagged teeth of a giant saw. As I drove, I looked at all the faces of the people that I passed. I looked at the people walking, the people in cars, the people sitting at the bus stop. It was hard for me to comprehend the fact that all those faces had an assigned identity, that they all represented an intricate and storied existence. They seemed more to me like placeholders, substitutes, properly composed exteriors that were really little more than shells, comprised of nothing but the reality I wished to see in them. Once they disappeared from my rearview mirror, so too did the lives they represented. I imagined them blinking out of existence at the exact moment that my eyes stopped seeing them. One minute they're there, passing me by on Interstate 36, driving to work or to visit their in-laws, and the next, they're gone. Nothing but a memory. The universe they occupied vanishes into oblivion. Like a minor character exiting the stage, their storyline ends.
It began to snow as I arrived at Mrs. Down's house. The air was coarse and chill, and still the house's front door was ajar. Is it always open? I wondered. No, replied a voice in my head. She opened the door because she was expecting you. Stop, I told the voice, but it went on talking as if it hadn't heard me. I guess expecting isn't exactly the right word though, is it? More like summoned. Yes, that's what she's doing. She's summoning you. I clapped my hands over my ears as if it would block out the voice, but I knew that was futile. It wasn't something I was hearing. The voice was already in my head. Perhaps it had always been there. It was a voice that I recognized, though I couldn't exactly say from where. Taking slow, muted steps, I proceeded through the foyer towards the living room. There I stopped, turned on a heel, and looked back at the front door. I stared through the gap at the snow-covered world outside. When had I entered the house? The last thing I'd remembered was standing there looking at the door, and then... It seemed like time had become disjointed. Like the conduit through which time flowed had sprung a leak, and now it was spilling out all over the floor, tossing me wildly from one event to the next. It felt like only seconds ago that I was on my way here, flying over the... No, not flying, driving. I drove here. Why did I think I'd flown? Where had that idea come from? I hadn't been on a plane since... I couldn't even remember when. But before I could slip deeper into that quandary, something tore me free from it. A sound. Something akin to the creaking of a floorboard but not that exactly. I turned my attention back to the interior of the house and took a few more steps towards the living room. There it was again, the creak that wasn't a creak, something that sounded more like the guttural exhalation of a dying animal. But it wasn't just a sound. It was something more. I could feel it, too. It was vibrating through me, pulling me towards something like an invisible tether. I watched my feet take step after blundering step, though their movement wasn't something I'd initiated. I had been mobilized by the sound, the vibrating sound. It coursed through me, coaxing me along, making me no more than a passenger in my own body. And it became clearer as I walked, as it tugged me towards wherever it wanted me to go. What was it? Not words, not speaking. But it was a kind of communication, a kind of vocalization from some sort of intelligent being. And not just one being, but a family, a lineage, something that survived through multiple generations, something with the power to take and receive life with the simple exhalations of its breath. You may wonder how I knew all this just by hearing that sound. And you're right to. But the answer is I didn't know it. I felt it. The sound was becoming a part of me. And by doing so, it was sharing itself with me, its memories becoming part of my own. My eyes were drawn forward to the mantle, the destination it was luring me towards. A few more paces and I stood before it. 
The sound echoed all around me, but I could feel that it was arising from somewhere behind me. I tried to turn my head to finally see the source of it, and I was surprised to find that the sound let me. It loosened its grasp on my body, allowing me to face it, to witness it. What I saw was Mrs. Downs, her jaw hanging open at an angle that was impossible to comprehend. It was as though I could see straight down her throat, could see even the place deep down in her gut that the sound emanated from. The dreadful cracking screech that rang out in a pitch far too deep to be human. And as I watched, it took hold of me again, contorting my body, pulling me back towards the photographs on the mantel. My eyes were pulled to a picture of Darren and his mother. The woman in the picture shared only a passing resemblance to the thing that stood behind me. And through the sound, through the constant rasping whine that escaped her lungs, she spoke. Look, she said, her voice right up against my ear. Look, see the face that you wear. As the words took root in my head, the world went black. When I awoke, I was lying on the living room floor, staring up at the smoke-stained ceiling. I wondered, as I laid there, what happens after we die? What happens when the airplane in which we're flying crashes into the Dinara mountain range in southeastern Croatia? Does some energy live on? And if so, what becomes of that energy? What happens when the bodily form it left behind is so yearned for that its loved ones draw forth a familiar, an unsuspecting empty vessel, waiting to be impressed upon by the face of another? Can somebody else inhabit your body? And if they can, are you still you? Is your spouse still your spouse? Or do the details of your life slowly disintegrate? Are they gradually replaced by the existence of whoever crawled into your head? Rising to my feet, I felt the weight of my body for the first time in what felt like years. It was an odd sensation, but not altogether unfamiliar. I had felt it before, and I would feel it again whenever this incarnation collapses and I'm born anew into the next one. Outside, the snow had stopped falling and the clouds had given way to a stark blue sky. I felt the sunshine on my face as I walked out of my mother's house. Or, more accurately, I suppose the face I was wearing felt the light of the sun. But I could sense that the owner of that face could feel it too. Deep down, in whatever capacity he still existed, in the darkness that had engulfed him, some semblance of the world still managed to trickle in. Anna Sheridan New York Times best-selling author of Supernatural Horror. Missing for nearly six months now. That's not possible. Is the compass broken? Or did I turn to the 
Given the circumstances of her disappearance, someone with a more vivid imagination might decide she'd pierce the veil, so to speak. Weak radio signal. 700 meters. Closing fast. There's no place for ghost stories and close encounters in this investigation, or any other. I need you to find me. Of course. What else would it be? The Sheridan Tapes, a serialized horror mystery podcast. Stream the complete series today on Realm and on all podcasting platforms.